My favorite meme coming out of the Biden election was a, a meme that was going around that said, congratulations to the drugs for winning the war on drugs. And so, you know, I think I think maybe we needed the benefit of that time and that experience to get to where we are today to actually implement these things effectively. Greetings and peace to you, Earthlings. Welcome to the Earthlings podcast, the show where we look at the challenges and opportunities facing us in the 21st century and the technology and information we have at our hands now to make better decisions for tomorrow. My name is Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and I support companies in the energy transition with Technica Communications and Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. And if you enjoy this podcast, we welcome you to subscribe so that you will get alerts when new ones come out. And you can follow us on social media, write us, let us know what you think about the show, share our information with other people, help us spread the word, or don't. If you, all you want to do is listen, that's fine too. And that laughter you hear in the background is our favorite energy wonk, Christian Rosalind. Hello, I'm Christian Rosalind, the co-host of the Earthlings podcast. I am a policy analyst, a writer, and yes, an energy wonk. But today, we're not going to be talking about the energy sector. No, no. But if you want to get metaphysical and a little woo-woo about it, we our topic could be a form of energy in a way. So excited to dive in here. We're talking about psychedelics and their use in mental health therapy. They're going mainstream, could be coming to a clinic near you, especially if you live in major cities. And they're gaining acceptance for various medical applications to treat drug-resistant or treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, anxiety, even a wide range of experiences that people face here on this planet. And, you know, I, for one, am having a hard time believing that we're even having this discussion mm -hmm. because this is, represents such a sea change in society and social attitudes. You know, I was a teen in the 1980s and 1990s, and I clearly remember that people were going to jail for like 10 years for being in the same room with a sale of psychedelics going on. I mean, many of these drugs were so massively illegal and it was such a serious matter. And now drugs like this, are, they're being seriously considered and used by medical professionals. And poof, yeah. It is growing up in the drug war, you would have not have thought we would get this far so quickly. But, you know, the fact of the matter is these substances, medicines, if you want to call them that, were showing very effective results in the 50s and 60s. There was a lot of research going on. And, you know, frankly, some people thought that was getting a bit out of hand and the culture war and those youngins getting all uppity about the Vietnam War and protesting and what a great way to shut them all down by making some of their favorite things illegal. So that's what the Nixon administration did. It was very clear you know, we know that they targeted that group and that's one way they did it. But the research never stopped. It just went into the shadows. The federal government was still regulating the substance and, and opening it up for specific research. So that never stopped. But you know what's fascinating about this is if we go back, if we go back before the drug war and if we go back before, you know, modern industrial society and back into ancient history, we have widespread psychedelic use. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we think of now as primitive cultures were using 
all kinds of psychedelics regularly in their religious rituals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for healing purposes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they were doing that up until the moment that, quote unquote, modern man discovered some of these things, like in the 1930s. There were some intrepid explorers that went down to South America and found the people who were using ayahuasca and convinced them to open up to them and show them what they, they did in their rituals. Same thing with peyote and, and a few others over the course of you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So that's how this was you know, somewhat rediscovered by other cultures and then appropriated and then ultimately made illegal for political reasons. But we, <laughs> I don't, what a, what I don't, turn. Have, I don't have, I don't have a thorn in my side about that whatsoever. So in terms of these psychedelics, what have modern day researchers found? You've so, looked into this. Yes, I have. There's a bunch of studies out there. Psilocybin shows a lot of promise. Compass Pathways is a NASDAQ listed healthcare company that's raised $240 million and they have conducted 22 clinical trials across 10 countries related to treatment-resistant depression. And they conducted the largest trial ever, and it was randomized, controlled, double-blind, and demonstrated that psilocybin was highly effective for people with depression at a high dose of 25 milligrams, and the placebo dose was one milligram. So it was called a functional placebo, because if you get a non-functional placebo, then you know you're in the placebo group because you don't have any effects whatsoever. And so that taints the study. But what they found was 29% of patients in that highest dose group had their depression in remission after three weeks of treatment. And then most of those people were still in remission three months later. Wow. Yeah. So, so it worked. <laughs> it worked. It worked. You it know? worked. And, I mean, MDMA it shows very similar results. And ketamine as well. Wow. So they don't necessarily make you more creative, and they can't make you fly, but they can be used <laughs> to treat depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Well, okay. you know, I mean, maybe they make you creative. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> nope, I didn't do that research. And maybe you fly in your own mind when you're on your experience. And so today we're going to talk about specifically about ketamine, which is a synthetic mind-altering substance. Yes, ketamine. It's legal. Uh, so that's why there's a, a lot of research around it and why you can receive this treatment readily in the United States and Canada and elsewhere. Although, of course, psilocybin is becoming uh, more legal in certain states here in the United States and, of course, is legal in Amsterdam, Netherlands, places like that. Ketamine has been researched very broadly, and the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom, they did a meta-analysis of 83 existing studies, including 29 randomized controlled trials, 21 observational studies, and 33 systematic reviews. And what they found was that anywhere between 1 to 24 hours after treatment, people with unipolar depression had their symptoms reduced between 1 to 2 weeks. And then bipolar depression saw relief as soon as four hours, and then that lasted consistently for 24 hours. And for both groups, the full effect lasted around three days, and some people still had relief after seven days. So not as strong as the psilocybin, but still uh, significant. And that's why a lot of times in the clinical setting, healthcare providers will recommend between one to six sessions 
across a couple of weeks. Okay. So speaking of ketamine, you talked with someone who's done a lot of work with ketamine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Ronan Levy is our, our guest for you today. He's the co-founder and executive chairman of Field Trip Health. They're a Canadian company and they're on the Canadian Stock Exchange. They've raised $150 million and they have a network of clinics in Canada and the United States that provide ketamine therapy to patients. And I had a cold at the time, so uh, I apologize if my interview sounds a little off. Uh, so let's hear from Ronan. Ronan, really excited to have you here, especially since I was able to take a few sessions over at Field Trip Health in uh, Santa Monica uh, a couple months ago. So uh, what gave you the idea to start Field Trip Health as a clinic? Yeah, it was a combination of factors, to be quite honest. So myself and Joseph and Hanan and Ryan and Mujib wasn't directly involved, but indirectly involved, we're all very active in the Canadian medical cannabis industry in Canada. We built the largest network of medical cannabis clinics in Canada, focused on doing cannabis medicine right. You know, not the Venice Beach approach to pay 50 bucks and here's your recommendation, but doing real medicine. And it created an impact. It created a huge impact. We helped, you know, roughly 150,000 Canadians access the legal medical cannabis system and people had transformative results. And and that was really important to me because when we got into the cannabis industry, uh, I was like, this is just people trying to get high, trying to get high high legally, which I didn't have a problem with per se, but I didn't think it was medicine. And so the experience there really, really opened my eyes to actually the transformative power of what's bucketed as plant-based medicine. And so it was an amazing experience. It was an amazing experience from an entrepreneurial perspective. It was an amazing experience from a humanitarian perspective to see the impact it created on so many people's lives with cannabis. So when we left the cannabis industry after selling that clinic network to a company called Aurora Cannabis, one of the first conversations we had afterwards was someone who was looking into doing a startup in psilocybin. And I was like, psilocybin? is that a thing? And she proceeded to tell us just how much of a thing it was. This was the middle of 2018 and it wasn't as much of a thing as it is now. But at the time, Michael Pollan had just published How to Change Your Mind, which anybody who's kind of watching the the psychedelic space has probably read. MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, had been granted breakthrough therapy designation for their phase two clinical trials, looking at MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD. Peter Thiel had just invested in Compass Pathways, which was pursuing clinical trials um, for psilocybin. And the thing that actually struck me the most was there were four or five online stores openly selling mushrooms in Canada, you know, openly, like no dark web, no nothing. Just like go online, send them some money and they'll mail you some psilocybin mushrooms. And what that sparked in me was the realization that the zeitgeist had changed. The universe had changed. We were moving into a new psychedelic renaissance. The rest of the world hadn't caught up yet, but we could be ahead of this curve. And having seen what cannabis could do, having done a little bit of the research around psychedelics, what psychedelics could do, realize that there's no greater opportunity that we could have in terms of a, an entrepreneurial opportunity, but b impact, you know, the, the impact of, I think what we're experiencing in the psychedelic Renaissance is going to be just mind blowingly huge. Um, and I can dig into that a little bit. So we're all, I, I was super stoked about the opportunity. Um, and then we're like, okay, what the hell do we do? You know, this isn't like cannabis where jurisdictions and countries were changing laws and it's becoming legal. Psychedelics were still very much illegal. So, 
we went out, we started talking to like Michael Pollan. We spoke to Rick Doblin at MAPS. We spoke to the folks over at Beckley, the Beckley Foundation, which has funded a lot of the research into psychedelics. And all of them came back and said, we need new clinical infrastructure. This is happening. This is coming. You know, rest assured, there's going to be a psychedelic therapeutic industry coming. Uh, but you can't do this in a doctor's office. You can't do this in most conventional medical institutions. You know, they're just not equipped to provide this kind of care. And so having just built a large network of medical clinics in an industry that is very much or was very much stigmatized like cannabis, we felt we had a unique skill set to bring to bear. And so after thinking about it for a while and figuring out, okay, what are we going to do at these clinics? And then discovering how ketamine was being used as a psychedelic, uh, we kind of, all of the stars kind of aligned being like, oh, okay, let's start building clinics. Let's use ketamine. MDMA will be coming in a couple of years and then psilocybin and, and we can really get out there, get ahead of the curve, start helping people and really accelerate this psychedelic renaissance. So that was a long winded answer uh, for your question, but I hope it gives a good picture. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's focus in on ketamine, which is what you're using now. Why ketamine? What is it about ketamine that made it the choice to work with? Two reasons. One is it works. You know, we're seeing transformative, transformative mental health outcomes using ketamine. This was all spawned probably about 20 years ago when um, some doctors noticed that people they treated with ketamine as an anesthetic, which is what it is primarily approved for also tended to report very positive mental health outcomes. And on the back of those findings, research picked up to the point where Dr. Tom Insel, who was the former director, who is the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, declared that ketamine is, and I always botch this quote, but something along the lines of the most important breakthrough in depression treatment in the last 50 years. So we see really incredible results treating people uh, people's depression with ketamine. So that's one reason. Second reason is at the proper dose, ketamine is very much like a psychedelic. You do have a psychedelic experience and, and that's important when you look at why we believe psychedelic therapies seem to be so effective is the experience matters. You know, people are often, often during a ketamine experience or a psilocybin experience or an MDMA experience, go back and are able to revisit past moments, past traumas, past experiences, past perspectives from a, an objective perspective. And it kind of gets you to the place you try to get through to in cognitive behavioral therapy, but you do that in an afternoon as opposed to years. Very often when you're using ketamine, you just have these transformative shifts in how you see the world. So that was the second reason we could use ketamine like a psychedelic, very much like how MDMA and psilocybin will be administered, which is paired very tightly with therapy. And the third probably most important reason is because it's legal and we could do it. Um, those were all of those factors went into, uh, why we started with ketamine. Yeah. It helps. It sure <laughs> helps. That really, that really helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I can, uh, from my experience with your clinic, I did two sessions and I think I'm probably, uh, the 30% of people where ketamine doesn't provide you that massive psychedelic experience where, you know, the walls start talking to you and yeah. there's all this you know, visual aspect. And when I was speaking with my therapist about it, she's like, yeah, you just, that might just not be your thing. But even so I did come out of those experiences with a different perspective on what I wanted to work on. And there was this uh, reduction in negativity that I was experiencing in my thought process and a new way that I could look at the challenges that I wanted to, to face and overcome. 
So I feel like even if you aren't having that wild, mind-blowing, pun intended, trip yeah. that that helps you helps you work through uh, whatever it is you you want to work on totally. uh, personally, you can still have the the ancillary long-term benefits, right? Hundred percent. My my first experience with ketamine was actually at our Santa Monica location as well, uh, and my experience was visual in a very esoteric kind of non-linear way. But what happened when I came out of it was a profound sense of gratitude. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I'm not, I'm not the poster boy of telling the best ketamine experience story. My, my experience with ketamine was, you know, I kind of felt like I was in the matrix in, in a kind of more organic way. I kind of felt like I saw the inside workings of the universe. Um, and it was internal, uh, and it was everywhere and it, also like humans has very mundane aspects to it. You know, you could be connected and be a part of the universal life force, but that could also mean that you're a kidney cell in the universal life force, which means you're alive and you're connected, but it may be not the most uh, glorious experience. And, and so that was the kind of sense I had during my ketamine experience. And as the ketamine started to wear off and I started coming back into my body, I was given a a, a profound sense of gratitude for how special and how unique and how wonderful this life is and whether or not we're part of a universal life force uh it's still cool that we get to be here now and and it really can like put a bullet through anxiety and depression when you get that sense of appreciation for everything that's going on um and yeah. so yeah so in many ways my experiences with psychedelics are, are like yours uh, but they do shift you and they do make a dent. They do. They do. Like I came, I came out of that experience being like, look, you just chose to live life on hard mode this time around. <laughs> That's just what you signed up for. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. You can totally do it, but you're not going to be the person that just, you know, has a, you know, a part-time job your whole life and does yoga four hours a day and meditates and makes your own kombucha. Like you're just not going to be that person. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure you're not going to be that person? <laughs> when I retire, I'll be that person. <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit, you know, we mentioned the treatment for depression and you alluded to anxiety there. What are the main mental health issues and challenges that people face that psychedelics can provide a therapeutic benefit for? I like to say that life is a sexually transmitted disease with a hundred percent mortality rate. And therefore, um, uh, all of life, I think in many ways can be treated with uh, a psychedelic assisted therapy, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Although I, I do hope on some levels we get there, you know, what we're seeing, what we're seeing with psychedelics is depression, anxiety, PTSD, just about any conventional mental health condition that you can name seems to have some degree of evidence where psychedelic assisted therapies can be beneficial. And, and if you think about maybe the root causes of a lot of our mental health issues and how psychedelics work, it kind of, kind of makes sense. Um, but it's also reflective of the framework in which we think about health, right? We only treat things that are wrong. It's the nature of our allopathic healthcare system, which has been very effective. Don't get me wrong. The last hundred years of allopathic medicine have been amazing. You know, we've had longer lives. People are living, you know, 
much healthier lives for longer periods of time. Uh, but I think we're starting to butt up against the the potential of allopathic medicine. And, and you see it shifting towards much more integrative and functional approaches to medicine, which is it's not about fixing what's wrong, like your depression or anxiety or PTSD. It's about amplifying also what's right, such that maybe, you know, you don't have depression or anxiety or you don't slip that far from whatever we're trying to achieve in life, happiness, bliss, whatever that the thing is, you know, uh, you, you build up the emotional resilience, um, to, to be able to deal with it. And then actually that, that was what inspired me, uh, more than anything to get into the psychedelics field, which was in terms of impact, there was nothing we could do more than if we can shift the conversation around mental and emotional health and well-being from one that's reactive and it's predominantly reactive right now, which is you go to your therapist or your psychiatrist or whatever when the shit hits the fan. But when things are fine, you're like, I don't need those guys. Why am I paying them? But if we can shift that to the point where people are like, you know, I'm going to do this like the gym. It's like, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I'm doing good. You stop going to the gym. It's going to slowly dissipate. But if you keep going and you keep building it, you're going to be stronger. You're less likely to get injured. injured you're less likely to get sick. Um, you're probably going to be happier. If we can treat mental health like that, if people do that, and I think psychedelics are the platform that are going to drive that conversation, um, then that that's real impact. And so going back to my, you know, not so joking joke at the beginning is like, what is psychedelic, what are psychedelics good for? I think they're good for a lot, but doesn't necessarily fit the conventional definition of what we treat in, in our current worldview. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is an interesting topic to me because and I live in the United States where we don't even seem to be so good at allopathic, which if I'm using this term correctly, allopathic mental health treatment. I mean, we're not even frankly good at taking care of people who are having real mental health issues. So I, I guess that makes me question if clearly there are advantages to preventative, but but is it question if that's a priority when we're not even taking care of the people who are really suffering in our society. I mean, there's a, there's a whole number of aspects of that conversation, but, you know, trying to stick to a somewhat medical scope of it. Part of the reason we're not taking care of people who have real mental health issues is because our current treatments by and large suck, right? They don't work very well and they have all sorts of side effects and they're miserable and, you know, of course, and and they're just not good. So yeah, it's like if everybody in the world, um, I don't know, had an infection, it's going to kill a lot of people, but as soon as you have something like penicillin that works as opposed to a nice bloodletting, um, you're going to see a shift. So it's it's partly a problem of there's all sorts of systemat- systemic and systematic issues with healthcare, mental health care, um, but there's also just the fact that our, our current medicines don't work very well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and how many, and how many people are self-medicating with things like alcohol or, you know, tobacco or, or, or just, Instagram. you know, cannabis or Instagram, gambling, <laughs> sex, yeah, all of these things. Uh, shopping, yep. right. Yeah. Uh, working too much. Uh, but uh, so yeah, I, 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 I can, I, th- I agree with you that I think that there, there is some massive opportunities for people to, to be more intentional with, with using these plant-based medicines in a clinical environment where you do have an expert, a therapist with you guiding you. So it's not so haphazard. And, uh, and I think I, I, I appreciate you mentioning that there are a lot of side effects and very undesirable outcomes that come from a lot of the medication that people do take for antidepressants, you know, opioids, oxycotton, for, for example, 
where people, you know, you get addicted to that stuff and then you go looking for it on the street and that just, that just sends someone down a spiral. Or Uh, even lithium, you know, I mean, the things that we've given people for bipolar disorder, you know, I've had friends who've had bipolar disorder and they didn't want to take their drugs because the drugs were as bad as suffering from bipolar disorder. (laughs) So... I mean, part of like the problem is like, we've always seek to numb, right? Like but a lot of our treatment options are to numb when in fact, and I'm only speculating here based on almost no scientific evidence. My sense is, is like a lot of these problems are come from people numbing, people repressing their emotions, you know, whether you talk about them as energies or emotions, what, whatever it is, it's like, that's the problem. And so if you're just taking drugs that are layering on to that numbing effect, you're, you're kind of in some ways amplifying the problem, um, even if it's providing a short-term solution. Sometimes sometimes there's a biochemical reason. Sometimes depression right. has nothing to do with uh, emotions or anything along those lines. But my instinct says most people's depression comes from you know, the, the vagaries of life and, and not being well-equipped, particularly men, um, not being well-equipped to deal with our emotions and, and the shit that comes up in life, um, because men don't cry, uh, you know, but you mean we're, we're not, we men, we're not social, emotionally self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't prioritized our own mental health. Ronan, say this isn't so. Say it you ain't know? so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's remarkable. The funny thing is, is like, um, you know, my, my path here, I had never tried psychedelics until, uh, that's not true. I had tried it once very drunk at a party, uh, ended very poorly. Uh, but other than that, like I'd never had a psychedelic experience until we started exploring the potential of psychedelics and, and, and starting field trip. Um, but my path along this journey started, uh, probably about 15 years earlier when I was in a relationship that I kind of knew instinctually I didn't want to be in, but it was too chicken shit to get out of it. Um, and so I did a session with the, the teacher I still work with to this day, uh, Erwin. And, you know, my, my goal in having that session with him was to try and figure out if I should break up with this girl or not. Uh, and, you know, the whole conversation turned not about the relationship. It turned on like, you don't know how to feel your emotions, Ronan. So, you know, he gave me, it, 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 it struck home when he said, okay, why, why are you with this person? And so I listed off like, well, you know, she's attractive. She's funny. She has a good job, blah, blah, blah. And like the list of seven or 10 things. And he's like, and, and I'm like, and what? He's like, and you don't love her. And I'm like, okay, I guess. And he's like, so what good is that list of 10 things that you just rattled off? He's like, love relationships. It's an emotional thing. It's like, if you don't know how to feel your emotions, you don't know how to deal with it. You can't logic your way through emotions. That doesn't work. They don't operate on the same planes. Uh, and he's like, listen, you're not the only person. In fact, every person has to go through the experience of tearing down the emotional walls we build. As children, we build emotional walls because as a two-year-old, when you're running around like a maniac and trying to stick your finger into electric sockets, your parents are constantly swatting at you and saying, no, 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 no. And if as an adult, someone told you no that often, you would lose your fucking shit. Excuse my language. I hope that's okay. Um, but as a child, you don't have a choice. You know, your survival depends on your parents. Uh, and so instead of getting angry every time, you just put up those emotional walls. And part of growing up is learning to take down those emotional walls and start to feel your feeling. Uh, most people are bad at that. Men are particularly bad. Bald Jewish men tend to be uniquely bad at that as well. Um, and so it's been a lifelong as a process. As a bald, non-Jewish man, though, I have to say, we're bad at it too. <laughs> yeah. 
I wanted to ask you, Rodin, from your professional view, uh, what do you think some of the most important studies that have come about recently about psychedelics in, in mental health therapy? Are there ones that you particularly point to? Um, there are a bunch. Uh, obviously, the most important are the ones that are the most robust and most advanced. And so, you know, MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they're in the second arm of their phase three clinical trial with the FDA. So we're talking about the most robust, the most thorough, most high-powered studies um, looking at MDMA-assisted therapy. And their first arm, they found that uh, 70% of participants uh, who on average had chronic severe PTSD for I think 16 or 17 years, 70% of them were effectively cured. Uh, of PTSD. Now I say effectively cured because when it comes to mental and emotion, emotional health, it's not like a, an infection where you know it's gone uh, and isn't coming back. Uh, uh, but what we saw in those studies is that six months out, I think it was six months, maybe it's 12 months out, uh, 70% of the participants no longer qualified as having PTSD according to the DSM. So it's a near effective cure. This is mind blowing for the record. You know, if you look at current treatment options, there's no uh, specifically approved drug or medicine for PTSD. Uh, so what most clinicians do is they try to use antidepressants, uh, to try and deal with the symptoms and the, and the current standard of care is trying to achieve a, a 30% improvement in PTSD symptoms. Now we're talking about a 70% cure. Um, so it is orders of magnitude different in terms of effect. And so certainly that study is is probably the most important in, in psychedelics broadly. So let's let's go a little deeper into this. What does ketamine do to the body and the mind? Can you describe the effects that it has psychologically and physiologically? I'm not good at speaking at the physiological aspects of it because I'm, I'm not a doctor nor a scientist. Um, you know, I do know it seems to act on the NMDA receptors in the brain. Um, so it works a little bit differently than the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD, which act on the 5-HD2A serotonin receptors. Um, but what we see happening uh, in, in most psychedelic experiences and psychedelic therapies is there seems to be three mechanisms of action. One is almost all of them result in, a, in their serotonergic, I never pronounced that right word right, but it basically re results in a large serotonin dump into your system. So you feel better, you know, serotonin makes you feel happy. So your body releases a whole bunch of serotonin. You, you feel a lot more loving, a lot happier, and that happens really quickly. So people in, in severely depressed or suicidal states, almost instantly, there's a, a, a nice bounce in, in their mood. The second thing that happens, which we touched on before, is in these psychedelic experiences, people are often able to, even if they're not visually seeing a past experience, they often are able to go back and deal with past experiences, past traumas, and see them from a different light. So again, kind of like the cognitive behavioral therapy thing, but on a hyper-accelerated basis that they can get there. Um, and then I kind of lent them into what I call neuroplasticity, uh, but there seems to be two other things that happen. They may be the same effect, but they may be different. One is following a psychedelic experience, there is a window of neuroplasticity when people are more adept at picking up new skills, new habits, new mindsets, new outlooks um, relative to the normal state of being. This seems to be because during a psychedelic experience, your default mode network kind of gets quiet 
Um, your default mode network is kind of your ego, your sense of identity, the thing that keeps you kind of on your straight and narrow path of who you are. You kind of give that a little bit of a rest and it's a lot easier to diverge off the path that you were on. <laughs> um, and so especially what we do at field trip is we work with different cognitive behavioral techniques like motivational interviewing or behavioral activation to say like, okay, Ronan, you're now in a state where much like a child is really good at picking up new skills or new language. You're more adept at picking up a new mindset or new habit. Let's take advantage of that window. So let's get you eating properly. Let's get you out exercising. Let's get you meditating. Let's get you practicing that when I don't know, your mom yells at you, you feel more confident saying, Hey, I'm not going to take that shit anymore. Stop. Right. Those kind of things. And, and it seems to stick better following a psychedelic experience. Now that may be in part driven by the fact that many psychedelics seem to be neurogenic, um, or synaptogenic, which means there's signs that your brain is actually growing new, new brain cells or new neural synapses. So the pieces that between brain cells. Um, so they start to talk to each other more. Um, and, and so it's easier to develop new neural pathways in the brain with different behaviors. Um, uh, so all of these seem to be happening it's not a very scientific description of what's happening, but you can sort of see how they stack. And it makes sense that all of these happening in, in close sequence lead to really transformative outcomes that aren't, aren't just transitory, but seem to stick for a long time. Wow. Okay. So that, that actually was fairly, we have an educated generalist audience, so that was fairly scientific. Okay. But if I could sort of sum up what you've got here, your brain gets flooded with happy chemicals. Yeah. Um, you're able to revisit past traumatic experiences and see them objectively in a new light. And the changes that you make are better able to stick. And you're you grow, able to- And you grow new brain cells. Yeah, pretty much. And you grow new brain cells. Wow. Yeah. Not bad yeah, for, you know, drugs that have been still declared as schedule one and thus having no medical utility or value. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that's, uh, there was, was, it was a little bit of a political uh, maneuvering there 100%. for some of the, and they keep those illegal, which is something I wanted to touch on. It's where do you think mental health treatment would be today if the research on psychedelics had been stunted so much in the sixties and seventies? For political gain, basically. You know, it's something I've thought about quite a bit. And the, the place that kind of landed instinctually to me um, was that I'm not sure humanity was really ready for what was coming. You know, if, if we're going to kind of zoom out on a metaphysical level and I don't want to get too woo-woo, but like I kind of get back to the point being like, I don't know that we could have actually implemented that effectively without crazy negative outcomes. I just don't think we were there now with the benefit of 50 years, you know, and, and a lot of learning about drugs and the costs of trying to prevent drugs. My, my favorite meme coming out of the Biden election was a, a meme that was going around that said, congratulations to the drugs for winning the war on drugs. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think, I think maybe we needed the benefit of that time and that experience to get to where we are today to actually implement these things effectively. But that's why it gets so exciting. Because if you think about, um, I had Dr. Julie Holland on, on our podcast, which is called Field Tripping, and she had this great line. She's like, the hippies were right. Like on so many policy issues, the hippies were right. Uh, and if you think about that and the cultural reverberations um, that came out of the late 60s, which I think are still very palpable to this day, uh, you know, that was like a million kids getting high on LSD, 
Right. And, and like, it's still a, a culturally, a cultural pinnacle point uh, of the 19th of the 20th. And I think still into the 21st century. Now imagine what it's going to be like when it's not a million kids getting high on LSD, but it's 10 million or a hundred million people using psychedelics consciously and productively and thoughtfully. And, and it becomes almost incalculable how different this world in my mind is going to look in 15 or 20 years as these become mainstream. Uh, Cause it's going to be so much different. If we just look at how much just, you know, five years of hippies moved to the social agenda subject to some, you know, back and forth and all that kind of stuff, but in many ways moved to social agenda. It, it's almost un, unimaginable how much this, this coming psychedelic Renaissance is going to move our, our social agenda. And, and I think in a very positive way. Wow. Psychedelic Renaissance. <laughs> I did not expect him to go there. I love how much of a big thinker Ronan is. And he's he's extrapolating the experience and what could happen as uh, these treatments for psychedelics become more mainstream. Yeah, like massive societal change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they're actually able to succeed this time. And we don't have some Nixon administration coming in and trying to squash the whole thing again for political gain. Sure. And I also have critiques of the drug culture that came out of the 1960s. You know, I, I think that there was a lot of irresponsibility there. Uh, you know, the promise of people opening up their minds and living freer lives kind of crashed and burned in a lot of cases. <laughs> well, I mean, sorry to be like cynical about it, but a society that is awake and has had their minds expanded are much harder to control. They are, and they, they didn't do a fairly good job at controlling themselves or at turning this into anything larger either, I would note. You know, I feel like the, the drug culture was sort of the end of the 1960s. It's where a lot of the ideas went to die. It, regardless of the authoritarian backlash, I feel like the whole experiment kind of failed on its own. And like maybe maybe 30 or 40 years were needed for people to learn the lessons and come back and do this better. I also feel like the authoritarian backlash kind of did squash a lot of it. And then, of course, all the boomers, you know, left college and got like normal lives and had kids and totally just dropped the whole uh, (laughs) (laughs) idealistic streak that they had. But, you know, some of those hippies are still around. You go to Eugene, Oregon, it's full of hippies. Go to Santa Cruz, hippies everywhere. It's great. That's why I appreciate what Field Trip Health and Compass Pathways and others are attempting to do here, which is establish reliable, responsible treatments for specific challenges that people have and putting this in a clinical setting and taking really great care to administer these treatments responsibly. Yeah, it is a much more responsible approach, and it is a fascinating way. It's it's fascinating to see this go mainstream like this. Mm-hmm. So you visited this clinic. What what was that experience like of the the whole thing of going there? Okay, so if my parents are listening, I consider it field research. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad's a scientist, so I hope he'll appreciate that. Um, 
And okay, so it started out with a series of informational sessions, and we first uh, did like sort of physical assessment, make sure that I was healthy enough to undergo the treatment. I had to give them proof from my doctor that I was physically fit because I hadn't had a physical in a year, so I had to go to the doctor. And then there was a series of therapeutic sessions where we talked about what I wanted to achieve and what I wanted to work on, my intentions. And then when I showed up at the clinic, uh, I didn't drive. My fiance uh, drove me there and waited in the car for two hours um, because they don't let you in if you're not having the treatment because of HIPAA violations and privacy. So thanks, honey, uh, for supporting me. So I had another quick meeting with my therapist. They put some monitors on me and they gave me half of a normal dose. They gave me some final instructions left me alone for 10 minutes, came back, asked me if I wanted the rest of the dose. And I said, yes, they gave it to me. They left me alone for another hour and a half. And then the uh, therapist came back. I told her what my experience was. She wrote a lot of stuff down. And then that evening, I sort of tried to relax and be, you know, sort of by myself and continue integrating what I had experienced, protect my psyche from negativity and all that good stuff, sort of decompression, if you will. And then the next day I met with my therapist for 30 minutes and we went over what I talked about. And she, I appreciate what she was able to do in terms of connecting what I had spoken about in the beginning, certain intentions and what I wanted to work on. And then what came about in the session, she connected those dots in a way that was very helpful. Uh-huh. So, you know, one of the things that really interested me was in the interview with Ronan, you mentioned this realization that you had that you're living life on hard mode, (laughs) but but that you gained the perspective to be okay with that. Yeah. Has that effect lasted? Yeah, it has because I went through two treatments. The first treatment, I really felt like I was, I was doing all the work for the session and I didn't feel like ketamine was really helping out very much. So I might be one of those people that just has a... I don't get visuals from ketamine and, and that kind of thing. So they gave me a larger dose uh, for my second session. And it was in that session where I felt my consciousness melt away from my body, that disassociative experience, and really, really felt like I was just one with everything. And in that experience, I was thinking about how I always kind of feel like I'm slightly below neutral in terms of my my mental state or my quote unquote happiness meter. And I know that happiness is an inside job and it doesn't happen to you. You create it, but I've always been kind of cynical and I'm a you know person in the grunge era, et cetera. So I had this moment in my, my experience where something told me that there's a part of my brain whose sole job is to make sure that I'm alive All it does is check in to make sure the body's alive. And it uses my negative thoughts or my unhappy feelings as a way of gauging if the body's still alive. And in that moment, (laughs) I thought, wait, well, can't my happy feelings be the thing that says we're alive and not the unhappy ones? Because then wouldn't we produce more happy feelings, right? And there was the other part of my brain that was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Never really thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, okay, well, can we fix that, please? Let's just fix that. And then I kind of felt something in my body. And I had a little bit of visuals that 
represented the fixing of this issue. And so I have actually, yes, I have felt happier since these treatments. And I also made some life changes to remove some of the negativity from my life, which helps too. Hmm. So do you think it's the chemicals that are making the change or is there, I mean, what's the dynamic here between the effect of the chemicals and the effect of the actual work and, and the setting that you're in? I think on a very basic level, there's always going to be a physical change that happens purely from taking the chemical uh, or the the medicine, if you will, but it's not going to be lasting. I mean, because like, you know, with like psilocybin or I think MDMA too, it's like a big serotonin dump. Well, that can help anybody. (laughs) Here's some happy chemicals. I'm going to flood you with happy chemicals. Try to be unhappy now. But there's always, you know, there's always a payoff, uh, sort of you pay for that longer term. But, and you know, People who sort of take these as party drugs, you know, they're not going to get the same sort of experience that one might get if they are being intentional about what they're looking to achieve from an experience and sort of setting the stage to, in the environment to be conducive to having a transformative shift in your perspective. And so for me, yes, there's some just baseline physical changes that'll happen from taking a chemical. And there is a more beneficial and broader, longer lasting experience one can have if they they put themselves in a place where they can, it's not just about getting quote unquote high, but you are actually going on a trip and you go through these stories or you relive these past events, but you get to have a new perspective on them. And I think that's really what makes the lasting change. Huh. And, you know, one of the things you talked about is set and setting. Mm -hmm. What does that mean and how did that play out at Field Trip Health? So set and setting, Michael Pollan goes into this a lot in his book, How to Change Your Mind, which is a great read. He talks about how there was some research in the 1960s where they attempted to remove all set and setting and really control uh, all the variables that might lead to certain outcomes. And people did not have a good experience. They did not have lasting outcomes. You mean taking large quantities of psychoactive drugs in a completely sterile environment wasn't fun? (laughs) Yeah, people had a bad time. (laughs) So so set and setting is, it's, it's the environment around you when you're having your experience, your trip, your session, if you will. And it could be natural things. It could be removing all the senses. So eye mask and putting on some headphones, meditative music and laying you back in a chair, taking some of these senses away from you so that you really can go inward. But even with those senses removed, what I've found is that the setting or environment that you're in just before you go into your session really can influence the stories or the imagery that you see or think about when you're on in your experience on your trip. Very similar to, you know how when you have a dream, sometimes things that happen to you during the day uh, inform the dream in random ways. Absolutely. And yeah. So I think, I think it's very similar. So, you know, another thing about this that's interested me is this idea of that these drugs can potentially help you to create new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. But we also talk a lot about 
the experience that people have. Mm -hmm. And these are very different ways of looking at it. One is a sort of empirical, physical, medical description, and the other one is very experiential. Like, is there a connection between these two? I think they're two sides of the same coin. I think Mm -hmm. they work together in the best of circumstances to reprogram your brain or give you a new perspective on on what you're going through. Hmm. So let's go big picture for a second. Do you see the changes in the attitudes towards psychedelics as being indicative of larger trends? Do you, do you think this comes from bigger changes in our society? So what's next for psychedelics and mental health? Oh, I think you're going to start seeing more deregulation and a lot of universities setting up these research facilities. The New England Journal of Medicine said that it was only a matter of time before the Food and Drug Administration grants approval for psychoactive compounds to be used therapeutically, so probably also synthetically, MDMA as soon as 2023 and psilocybin probably a few years later. Also, Oregon has legalized psilocybin and uh, they are currently working on how to formulate programs and administer those uh, and regulate those statewide. Then you've got Denver and Oakland, California, and Washington, D.C., all decriminalizing psilocybin. Uh, California is also looking at that. So we're just going to see more and more states start decriminalizing psilocybin at the very least, if not other therapeutics. And eventually, I think, you know, the Justice Department will have to look at this just like it has to look at cannabis eventually. And that's coming too. So my concern is that the pharmaceutical companies will stick their greedy hands in this and kind of mess with it for capitalistic monetary gain. <laughs> it's it's funny that you mention the pharmaceutical companies uh, because, you know, I think one of the things that this that's really come to me through this show is thinking about our frame mm-hmm. and the way that we've traditionally had this frame of bad drugs, the illegal drugs, the irresponsible drugs versus good drugs, the drugs that your doctor gives you, mm-hmm. the drugs that you need to get healthy. The quote-unquote safe drugs, the dangerous safe drugs, drugs and safe drugs, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's another aspect to this frame. And, and that's the interesting thing about psychedelics and cannabis being decriminalized is they're, they're sort of shifting in that frame and maybe breaking that frame apart again. But, you know, I, I think that frame fundamentally has some other problems here. I'm thinking about right now a recent settlement uh, with the Sackler family who are going to pay up to $6 billion in the, as part of the Purdue settlement mm-hmm. for their role in destroying the lives of, what, thousands of pe- millions of people across the country through Oxycontin, yeah. which was one of the good drugs. That was the drug that your doctor gives you to deal with pain. It's mm-hmm. safe. You have a prescription for it. And it ended up not being safe at all. It no. ended up being something that people got hooked on when they couldn't get more Oxycontin. They went to heroin. And yeah. I think everybody can agree that heroin is a bad drug. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking about our society where Oxycontin is legal, but these potentially beneficial psychedelic drugs like psilocybin mm-hmm. are highly illegal. And <laughs> it just seems like the whole frame is not either broken or upside down or just not useful at all. (laughs) (laughs) I I agree with all of that. It is upside down and broken. And and frankly, you know, anybody, 
I don't know. I just, when I think about all of that, I feel like Western medicine on a very basic level is attempting to address symptoms or can only help you once you have tissue damage and there's nothing, (laughs) there's no going back from tissue damage, right? Your body, but your, Mm -hmm. but your body on a holistic level has many abilities to fix itself and heal itself. It's an incredibly sophisticated machine. And Western medicine will only attempt to recognize things as being wrong when they're broken. But once they're broken, they're much more difficult to fix. And so I see psychedelics as fitting into sort of where you're going to recognize a symptom as early as you can, or once you recognize it, instead of treating it on a basic level, you're going to go deeper and try to find the root cause of what's going on and address that because that is more permanent. And when you do that, you're supporting the body's natural abilities to heal itself. And in this case, the mind's ability to heal itself. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the challenge with the mind is not really designed to deprogram itself. So what it is, is if you think about it as a computer, it's layers of programming. Mm -hmm. And those programs work great at certain ages for certain experiences, but they don't work for other experiences, yet the brain attempts to apply them. So Mm -hmm. a simple example would be don't talk to strangers. Very good program for young children to follow. Mm -hmm. You are an adult. You walk into a big room networking event. Don't talk Mm -hmm. to strangers. Gets (laughs) told to you. And if you don't understand how to deprogram that, then as an adult, you'll have a harder time networking. Uh So there are different techniques for reprogramming or deprogramming or defragging your brain. And I feel like psychedelics are one of the latest tools that we're discovering and starting to use to great effect. Potentially great effect, but the mind's a big place. (laughs) it's potentially infinite you know it might not even be of this reality (laughs) but i'm not going to go into multiple dimensions fourth fifth dimension i know we're not using very much of it um i know there's a lot more there than we typically use well i mean you, you know carl sagan i love this quote he says the cosmos is within us and we're made of stardust we are a way for the universe to know itself i love carl sagan and maybe that's what we really need here. Maybe that's what this is all about is perspective. Mm-hmm. And with that, Earthlings, thank you for tuning in. And we will see you on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. <laughs> <laughs>